because of relationship, because people care about each other. If it was harvest time and a farmer was picking apples and he fell on the tree and broke his leg, everybody could stand and harvested his crops. There wasn't any question about it. Somebody got killed by a grizzly bear. Everybody pitched in and took care of their families. It was the way we were as Americans. And now it has become particularly disturbing when we see the purveyors of hatred and division holding sway in our nation. Convincing people that there's a war on women and that there are racial wars and that there are income wars and there are age wars and their religious wars, and there's a war on virtually everything that you can imagine. And if there's somebody who doesn't agree with you, they're your enemy to be destroyed, to be hated. Have you noticed uh, when you read an article on the internet and you go to the comment section, you will not get five comments down before everybody's calling each other vile names and saying how idiotic they are. Where did that spirit come from? It did not come from our Judeo-Christian roots, I can tell you that. And it is something that needs to be rejected because our strength is in our unity. And right now is the worst time for us not to be united because there are radical Islamic jihadists who want to destroy us. Why would we help them by trying to destroy ourselves? It just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, we need to begin to, to really, particularly as conservatives, and if you don't hear anything else I say today, please hear what I'm about to say now. Conservatives must be smarter than they have been in the past. In the past, they have said, well, if I don't agree with this person on everything, I'm not voting for them. I'm sitting on my hands. I'd rather sit on my hands than choose the lesser of two evils. Let me tell you a secret. That is exactly what the secular progressives want you to do. They're going to try to encourage you. They're going to say, you guys are the righteous ones. And it is wonderful that we have people like you who stand on principle and never compromise on anything. And they'll butter you up and make you think that you're the greatest thing in the world. As long as you sit on your hands and don't vote, that's what they want. Because when you don't vote, you vote, but you vote for them. And if we get another progressive president and they get two or three Supreme Court picks, your children and your grandchildren are toast. We're just not going to have the same kind of America that we've had before. So this is a little different situation than we've had in the past. And we, we really must think about the preservation of the American dream. You know, I, I think of myself as a youngster. You know, I had that American dream. I wanted to be a doctor. There was nothing else that really appealed to me. I skipped right over policeman and fireman. And I went straight to doctor. And I loved anything on the radio about it, anything on television, Dr. Kildare, Dr. Casey. I mean, I would be all over that stuff. I even like going to a doctor's office. <laughs> and that's kind of rare for a little kid. I would gladly sacrifice a shot just so I could smell the alcohol swab. And uh, <laughs> if I was really lucky, I could put the stethoscope on, listen to my heart, or listen to anything else that was making noise. I mean, it was just so much fun. 
But, you know, there were obstacles along the way. You know, my parents got divorced early on. We lived in dire poverty. My mother only had a third grade education. She discovered that my father was a bigamist and she had to raise his father. So, and uh, I'll tell you the interesting thing about my mother, though. She absolutely refused to be a victim. And no matter what was going on, no matter what was going on, and she never felt sorry for herself, which is a good thing. The problem is she never felt sorry for us either. So, you know, there was never any excuse that you could make that was good enough. She would always say, do you have a brain? And if the answer to that was yes, then you could have thought your way out of it. It doesn't matter what anybody else said. It doesn't matter what anybody else did. And in the long run, I think that's probably the most valuable thing that she did for us. Because if you stop looking for excuses, you're much more likely to find solutions. And that's what we need right now. We need solutions. We have a variety of uh, very accomplished excuse makers, but they don't really get us anywhere when you consider what the problems are that we have right now. You know, I think about our fiscal situation. Thomas Jefferson said, it is immoral to pass debt on to the next generation. If we could bring him back to today and he could see what was going on, he would stroke out immediately. I mean, he would not even be able to believe what we are doing for the next generation. $18.5 to $19 trillion of national debt and rising, continually rising. Now, I know a lot of the progressives say, oh, it's just a number, it doesn't mean anything. But isn't that what the Spaniards said in the 17th century? and the French in the 18th century, and the English in the 19th century, and that with the ancient Romans and the Greeks said, all before they collapsed under financial distress because they weren't being fiscally responsible. And we need to really start thinking about what are the implications of that accumulated debt? Well, for one thing, it's starting to destroy the American dream. You say, how so? Well, the Fed, the central bank, their policies are affected by that level of debt. As you know, they've been trying to raise the interest rates for years. The interest rates have been down near zero for approaching a decade. Recently, you know, we got a quarter percent increase. But why are they having such difficulty? Because the interest on that level of debt, what we call the debt service, right now is $250 billion a year. And that's at near zero interest rates. If you raise the interest rates to a normal level, you'd be talking a trillion dollars a year. We don't have an extra trillion dollars a year. So we have to keep those rates depressed. Now some people say, that's good. Because if those rates are depressed, then I can get a mortgage for a much lower amount of money. Uh, that could be true, but here's the real issue. For years and years in America, 
Part of the American dream was to be able to retire. And Joe the Butcher, every Friday, put 5% of his check in his savings account. And he watched it grow over the next several decades. And then he was able to retire with a nice nest egg, with or without Social Security, and he did just fine. That's fine. Gone. That part of the American dream, gone. You don't make any money by saving in a savings account anymore. Same thing with the bond market. The only people who can make any money are people who have risk tolerance and can't invest in the stock market. Well, who are those people? Upper income people. They're the ones who make the money. So what happens? The income gap grows. And, you know, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton will tell you that it's because of those evil rich people. And if we take their money, everything will be okay. No, it's not true. That everybody will be poor. That doesn't work very well at all. But in fact, you know, what we have to really start recognizing is that the real reason that the American dream is disappearing is because we have a government that has been fiscally irresponsible and that is selling the future of our children and our grandchildren. And unless we understand what's going on, we will continue to be manipulated and fooled. You know, our founders said that our system and our freedom is based upon a well-informed and educated populace. And they said if we ever become anything other than that, the nature of the country will change. Why? Because the people would be easy to manipulate. All it would take was a slick politician and a complicit media, and off you go on another tangent completely. I mean, listen, right now, you hear people saying, the economy is great, and these policies have done wonders. Unemployment is down to 5%, which is the definition of full employment. And if, if you really are not an in-depth studier, and have a rudimentary understanding of the economy, you would say, fantastic, this is great. But if you know, then you recognize that the real number is the labor force participation rate. The number of people eligible to work who are actually working. That number is at a 38-year low right now. And you can't be manipulated as easily when you understand that kind of thing. The other thing that is so important for you to know is about the fiscal gap. Now, the fiscal gap is something that politicians don't talk about. But I'm not a politician, so I talk about it. And what it is, is the amount of unfunded liabilities that we owe, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, all the governmental programs, uh, there's 645 government agencies and sub-agencies that all have budgets going forward. Money that we owe for that, what we call infinite horizon accounting, versus the amount of money coming back in uh, from taxes and other revenue sources. And we should have a lot of revenue sources, by the way. This country owns over $150 trillion in assets. And you take a good company, and you get 150 trillion assets. Believe me, the return 
on that capital each year because only 2% would wipe out the deficits that we have. But we do it in a very inefficient way. We do not run our government like a business, and we really should. It's something I'm sensitive to because you know, I spent 18 years on the board of Kellogg, 16 years on the board of Costco, and uh, you know, learned a great deal about how to run something very efficiently. And you know, there are programs like Lean Six Sigma that have been used to turn around Toyota, 3 and a bunch of companies. If you were to apply those kinds of efficiency management programs to the government, it would be unbelievable what would happen. The amount of money that we could save, the amount of efficiency that could be intended. The government wouldn't need all of your money. And uh, you know, that is something that I am very much committed to do uh, should the people of America and God decide to put me in that office. But you know, it is something that we have control over. But at any rate, those numbers should be almost identical. What we owe versus what we have coming back. And then when they're not a gap forms, and bring that forward to today's dollars, it's called a fiscal gap. It sits at over $200 trillion. And somebody has to be responsible for that. And that's why you know, we're getting in a situation where we're having an economic downward spiral. When people talk about the new norm and all this kind of stuff, there's nothing normal about this, okay? This is, this is not who we are as Americans. Uh, and how do we fix it? Because it is fixable. First of all, we have the most powerful economic engine the world has ever known, but it is not functional because it is wrapped with regulation. Every aspect of our lives, a gazillion regulations now. And I am very strongly in favor of looking at all of those regulations and assessing them in terms of their benefit versus their cost. And if the benefit doesn't outweigh the cost, to get rid of them. You know, you look at uh, something like you look at something like the president's clean power plan. The EPA has said that if you institute every aspect of it, it will lower the temperature on the Earth by 0.05 degrees Fahrenheit in 85 years. That's the benefit. The cost is billions of dollars and millions of jobs. Does that make sense? Of course not. It makes no sense at all. And you know, every single regulation costs money in terms of goods and services. It's the most regressive type of tax because everybody has to pay it. When you go into the grocery store and you buy, you know, a, a jar of great jam and it's gone up 10 cents because of some regulation, poor people notice that right away. Rich people don't notice it. Middle class people may not notice it until they get to the cash register and everything has gone up a little bit. But those are the kinds of things that decrease the quality of life and the ability of people to enjoy their labels. But most people can't quite put their fingers on it. That kind of thing. What we've done with the Fed and with the monetary policy, those are the things that are adversely affecting the lives of people in this country. And we have to get to the real roots of the problem and stop allowing all this stuff to be politicized. 
I don't think that there is a single problem that faces us as a nation that cannot be solved with common sense as long as you get rid of ego and politics. And that's unfortunately what we trust everything that we do. And then, you know, in terms of, of jump-starting our economy, there's over $2.1 trillion overseas right now. Uh, incredible amount of money. Why is it not being brought back? Because we're in the highest corporate tax rate in the developed world. But what I would suggest that we do is give a six-month hiatus on that corporate tax rate. Let that money be brought back tax-free, uh, repatriated here, with the only stipulation being that 10% has to be used in enterprise zones and to create jobs for people on welfare and people who are unemployed. You want to talk about a stimulus. That would be the biggest stimulus since FDR's New Deal, and it wouldn't cost the taxpayers one penny. You know, you can't get better than that. That's low-hanging fruit. But also, it encourages our corporate uh, structure to begin to invest in the people around them, invest in their fellow citizens, invest in the downtrodden around them to help elevate people, to bring people out of the state of dependency and make them part of the fabric of success in America. It is us, the private sector, that does that better. The government tries, maybe, you know, it started really back in the 20s of the Wilson administration, insinuating itself and deciding that they had control of what was going on. It kept growing. By the time we got to the 60s, uh, LBJ, you know, war on poverty. We're going to eliminate poor people in our country. There won't be any. Well, how'd that work out? Not all that well. $19 trillion later, we have 10 times more people on food stamps, more welfare, more poverty, more broken home, out of robot birth, crime, incarceration. Everything that was supposed to be better is not only worse, it's much worse. That's what happens when the government starts doing things that it's not supposed to do. I wish they would just read the Constitution. Wouldn't that be helpful if they could do that? I, I suspect maybe they did do it. And maybe they misinterpreted the preamble to the Constitution, which talked about the duties of the government. And one of the things it says is to promote the general welfare. Well, they probably thought that meant to put everybody on welfare. <laughs> but obviously, that's not what it meant. And you know, we need to start thinking in a very, very different way. You know, one of the other things that uh, I've talked about uh, recently and you've seen our tax policy come out is real fairness when it comes to taxation. And uh, that's why I have proposed proportional taxation, 14.9% on everybody with no deductions and no loopholes for anybody. And uh, I base that on proportionality, which is what God said in the Bible. He didn't say, if you have a bumper crop, you owe me triple time. He then said, if your crop fell, you owe me nothing. So if God thinks it's fair, I don't think we can improve on that. And now you see everybody exactly the same. And, you know, the minute you introduce, you know, 
deductions and, and loopholes and tax credits, earned income credits, whatever, everybody starts manipulating everything so that they can fit into that. And the more manipulating ability they have, the more they can take advantage of it. And there's some people who can take advantage of it better than others. So that's unfair inherently. And, and, and really, isn't that one of the reasons that people no longer trust the government? Because they allow so many favors, and they pick and choose the winners and losers. And if you're in the special group, you get special handling. You remember when uh, the so-called Affordable Care Act first came out, and all the president's friends were there, can we get an exception, give us an exemption, let it not start with us? I mean, is that total crap? I mean, that is totally not what America is supposed to be about. And I actually think it is possible to bring some integrity back once again. But it's, it's not going to be easy, believe me. And, uh, you know, I've faced a lot of fury uh, because I don't play by the game. I don't accept donations from billionaires who want to influence me or professional interests, which absolutely refuse. And I would do that as president too. Because what I've discovered is that anything coming out of Washington that doesn't make any sense has a special interest group attached to it. Absolutely guaranteed. We can get away from it, but it's going to be tough. And it's going to be a difficult fight. Uh, it's a fight that I'm willing to take on. A fight that I hope many of you are willing to take on. Because we can't really be free unless we're brave. Unless we're willing to fight. You look at the people who came before us and how they were willing to fight. There is no question you will be attacked. They will do everything they can to try to get rid of you. They write my obituary, my political obituary, once a week. But, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because as long as the people are there, we still have hope. And that's the way that our system was designed. Now, the other thing that I think really threatens our future and that frightens me is our failure to take a leadership position on, on the world stage. And uh, when we don't do that, there are others who are eager to fill in that gap. But they aren't necessarily upstanding people. And they certainly don't necessarily agree with the policies that we have. Um, and I think specifically of ISIS of, and of the radical Islamic jihadists. They are serious. They want to destroy us. And, uh, you know, we seem not to be nearly as serious about stopping it. For instance, you look at our southern border and the fact that it is very porous. I was down there past summer talking to some of the sheriffs. They were talking about the OTMs, other than Mexicans, who were flooding through that area. Um, a lot of them from Syria, Iraq, Somalia, Nigeria, all kinds of places. People who are coming here not to do good things, by the way. And uh, there are terror cells that are embedded all over this country just waiting for instructions right now. It is really quite a serious issue. And the problem is our government is not really doing anything to stop it. 
Um, we could stop all of that illegal traffic if we really wanted to. An example is Yuma County, Arizona, where they put up a double fence with an asphalt road in between for quick access. They put border guards on the border. Imagine that, border guards on the border. And they prosecuted first-time offenders. Rather than the catch and release program, it stopped 97% of the traffic. And that was in one sector. There are nine sectors. We could easily duplicate that all the way across and add to that motion detectors and drones for early warning. And I think we could make it pretty close to 100%. We also have to do our northern borders and, uh, you know, our Atlantic and Pacific borders. You know, there are rules of engagement uh, that we're not supposed to intercept, you know, certain ships now uh, and that we used to be able to do. And those people are just, you know, coming here. I don't really understand some of the policies of, of our administration, to be honest with you. I don't know what it is that they're trying to do. But I know that all of this stuff is controllable by people who really are interested in protecting the citizens of this country. So we do have the ability to do it. Now, when it comes to ISIS, I have said all along, we have to treat them very seriously because if we don't, we're going to be fighting them over here. No, no question about it. And in order for them to carry out their jihad, they have to have a caliphate. You know, they were missing that from the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1924 until recently when they gained territory in Iraq and Syria. They had footholds in, in Egypt and, and uh, Libya and Somalia and Tunisia and various places. That gives them the legitimacy that they need. And you know, if you have some time, go back and read about Mohammed and Mecca and then how he moved to Medina and established his armies and established his initial caliphate and wiped out all the Jews in the Arabian Peninsula. And you know, it's really a very fascinating history, but it, it gives you the kind of background to be able to understand what we need to do. We need to take their caliphate and we need to, de to, to just deny them any territory whatsoever. And I believe the best way to do that is to give the mission to our expert military officials and ask them, what do you need in order to accomplish this? And then be willing to give them whatever they need to accomplish it and don't tie their hands behind their back. And I think that's pretty good. And then we need to deprive them of the money. ISIS is the richest terrorist organization ever. And uh, they've got oil. We have to stop them from deriving revenue from that. Either take it or destroy it. And some of these silly rules of engagement that the, that the administration has, you know, don't bomb, you know, an oil tanker because there may be people in it. Give me a break. I mean, all you have to do is say, we're bombing, anything coming out of there, so if you don't want to die, don't get on it. You know, I think that's pretty... I think that's pretty compassionate, you know? Yeah. That's what I call compassion. Compassion is not allowing them to multiply so that they can kill our people. I think that's the opposite of compassion. And then we need to shut down all of their monetary channels so that they can't 
disseminate money around the world because they look for disaffected individuals and they can recruit them, but they can recruit them because they can pay them, shut down their mechanisms for pain. And when they come up with alternate mechanisms, we follow those and we see where they lead and we destroy the people on both ends. That's the way we have to do it. And then, you know, attack their command and control center in Raqqa. Why should they be able to sit there and smoke their cigars in their comfortable chairs? Why don't we shut off all the routes into the city? There are only four and soften the city. Why don't we have our special ops people attack them at two in the morning and let's put them on the run and wherever they go, let's chase them and not let's give them a chance to sit down ever and to relax. Those are the kinds of things that make a difference. And then in this country, we need to teach all of our citizens what to do if they fall under an attack. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, we used to have air raid drills, you know, during the Cold War. And uh, when that alarm went off, you knew where you were supposed to go and what you were supposed to do. We need to start teaching our citizens that. Because I guarantee you, San Bernardino is not the end of this. This is going to continue, and we need to be ready for it. What we don't need to do is deprive our citizens of guns. That's the last thing we need to do. Instead, you know, we should be offering free courses in safety and gun safety for all of our citizens. Have you ever noticed, you know, with these mass school shootings that they don't occur in Israel? Have you ever thought about that? They're sitting right in the midst of all these terrorists and those mass school shootings don't occur there. I'll tell you why. Because all the terrorists know that in every one of those schools, there are teachers who are specially trained in how to thwart their attacks. And they have weapons in hidden places, and they will use them. And have you noticed in this country, when we have these mass shootings, where do they go? Gun-free zones. They're not stupid. There should be no gun-free zones if they're Washington. We ought to have people. Because, you know, we have to deal with reality. Now, it's very nice for the president to say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there were no gun violence and everybody was wonderful? That would be nice, I agree. But that's utopia. That's not where we live, and that's not who we're dealing with. And the criminals and the crazies, they don't care what kind of rules and regulations you come up with. They're not going to pay attention to them. So I'm for anything that if you apply it to these situations, it will stop them. But if it doesn't stop them, then all it does is put the people at, at more risk. So we don't want to be doing that kind of thing. I think also in this country, we need to be following their internet communications extremely carefully. And uh, we, need, we need to be putting out alternative messages, uh, uh, decent messages, to attract the same kinds of people. But we also ought to engage in cyber warfare. We ought to shut down their servers. We ought to destroy any communications they have. You know, some people say, yeah, but that's a dirty pool. Well, they're, they're dirty people, so we use dirty pool. That's not a problem. And we need to be talking to the imams and to the clerics about their duty. Their duty is to help us identify the radicalized elements. 
And if they're, if they're unwilling or unable to do that, then how are we supposed to identify them? And if we can't identify them, then obviously it's going to change our attitude and the way that we react. Now, you know, I, I believe in the fact that we are a land of immigrants. You know, as uh, Teddy Roosevelt said in the early 1900s, we welcome anybody from any place in the world, regardless of the nation or the race or the religion, as long as they want to be Americans, they accept our values and our laws. If they don't, they can stay where they are. I think that is vitally important for the integrity of our nation and the identity of our nation. We do have an American identity. Isn't it cool that you can go any place? You can go to Maine. You can go to Alabama. Uh, you can go to Florida. We all speak the same language. You can go to Egypt. Maybe not the Jersey. But uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, uh, you know, we have this common culture every place, all the way across the nation. And it is something that we should be proud of. You know, some people say, America is no different than anybody else. Is that really true? You think about this world. A hundred years before America, 500 years, a thousand years, 5,000 years, people did things the same way. Within 200 years of the advent of our nation, men were walking on the moon. It changed the trajectory of mankind. It is the most exceptional nation the world has ever known. And our values, our values and our principles are because of our Judeo-Christian foundation. And we should be in no hurry to give that up for the sake of political correctness. Everybody here has a role to play in saving our nation. We all have spheres of influence. You need to talk to your friends. You need to talk to your neighbors, your co-workers, particularly the ones who don't vote. You know, in the last election, 93 million Americans who could have voted didn't vote. 25 to 30 million evangelicals who could have voted did not vote. That would have completely changed what the outcome. We have the ability, without question, to return this nation to what it was originally intended to be. And you know, it was Thomas Jefferson who perhaps put it down. He said that the people of America would stop being vigilant. They would stop paying attention. And as a result, the government would do what all governments naturally do, grow and infiltrate and dominate. But he said, just before we turn to something else, the people of America would awaken, they would recognize what was going on, and they would rise up and they would retake control of their nation. And I say, now is the time. Please join me in this effort to do that. Thank you.
for a few questions and answers. Yes. Realistically, how fast can we get rid of Common Core? Uh, here's the key. The key is recognizing that education is the great divide in this country. You get a good education, you write your own ticket. It really doesn't matter where you come from. And we know that, you know, very good education exists in lots of venues. Uh, and we know that very poor ed education exists in lots of venues, particularly in public schools. That means we need to provide school choice for our students all across this nation. And uh, I'm very much in favor of a state-mediated school voucher program, which will allow students to be able to go to any school and uh, to have that uh, taken care of financially. That will force the failing schools to either get better or disappear. In either case, it's okay. Because we have to educate our people. We only have 330 million people. We have to compete with China with 1.4 billion, India with 1.1 billion. And uh, so we can't afford to lose any of it. And for everyone that we keep from going on that path of self-destruction, one less person that we have to be afraid of or protect our families from or pay for in the penal system or the welfare system, one more campaign productive member of society who may discover a new energy source or the cure for cancer, we need all of our people. And when we have that kind of a program in place, then I think we can easily get rid of common core. And I think that's something that can be done in less than a year. Of health empowerment accounts. 
It's like a health savings account, but without the bureaucrats. So that you have control over it for healthcare spending. Everybody gets one. We pay for it with the same dollars that we pay for traditional healthcare, with, although you wouldn't have to spend as many of them. And uh, you get people, these things from the time they're born to the time they die, they can pass them on to their family when they die. They can shift money around in a family, so dad's $500 short, mom can give it to him out of hers, or aunt, or uncle, or cousin, anybody. Makes every family essentially your own insurance company with no middleman. Imagine the flexibility that that provides. It also makes you care about each other. You know, if Uncle Joe was smoking like a chimney, everybody's going to hide his cigarettes, you know. Uh, that's a good thing. But also now the cost of the catastrophic insurance drops dramatically because the only thing coming out of that is catastrophic healthcare. How often do you need catastrophic healthcare? Not very often at all. So it's like a homeowner's policy with a big deductible versus a homeowner's policy where you want every scratch covered. Two very different animals. One costs $10,000 a year, one costs $15,000 a year. The same kind of thing. And you allow it to be bought across state lines also. That takes care of 75% of our people. But doesn't take care of the indigent. How do we take care of them now? Medicaid. What's the annual budget? Almost $500 billion. How many people participate? Close to 80 million, which is way, way too many. Uh, and that's something that can be addressed as we fix the economy by fixing the taxes and the regulations and getting a lot of the impediments out of the way. Um, and that, that number will automatically go down significantly. Because a lot of people, for instance, who are on medical disability, you know, all their unemployment benefits ran out, so now they get the doctor to find something to go on unemployment. But when we have a system that is working and they can get a good job, you'll see how that number begins to shrink very significantly. All the problems will shrink when we fix the economy. Uh, but at any rate, uh, if you do the math, five more than $5,000 for each man, woman, and child on Medicaid. What could you buy with that? A concierge package, two to $3,000 a year. That's what rich people buy. You still have thousands of fellows for their catastrophic health care. And you make possible for them to purchase a number of different kinds of insurance, very much like we do with Medicare and Part C with MediChoice, where the government gives you a certain stipend and you can, you can choose from the things. Uh, we've modified that and made it much, much better, uh, both for Medicare and for Medicaid. And people will not be second-class citizens. Everybody will be treated the same. Uh, they'll be all of the same value to the healthcare system. And also, it brings the whole healthcare system into the free market economic model. And uh, that's what brings transparency, and that's what brings uh, efficiency and quality. And you don't have to play the games that we play with the insurance companies, you know, where you have to jack the price up 10 or 20 times because you know what they're going to pay. All that kind of stuff disappears. And uh, I think it's going to make it so much better, so much easier, so much cheaper, and effective.
No question about it. The student loans about 1.4 trillion dollars out of the 18.5 trillion dollars, a significant portion, and that is going up uh, on a regular basis because colleges have discovered that all they have to do is accept somebody, and then you know they get this guaranteed loan. The problem is that loan <coughs> is at five, six, seven, eight percent, and it compounds, and you know people come out with unbelievable debt. We do have to find a way to solve that. One of the things I've been thinking about is making the student responsible only for the principal and the colleges responsible for the interest. That way they have skin in the game. And they're going to be very concerned about the escalation of prices. They're going to be looking for alternative methods of financing that education. Uh, but you know, those are the kinds of things that we have to begin to think about streamlining the process also. And, you know, if we're going to have student loans, you know, when I was a student coming along, uh, they were subsidized at two and three percent. So that it, it, it became possible for people to actually pay them off. So, you know, we need to begin to understand that. We also need to, uh, you know, open up alternative uh, employment for people. When I was in high school, they had vocational you could learn how to be an electrician or a plumber uh, or a welder. I was talking to the CEO of a company recently. He said, I can't find any welders. If you can find me an apprentice welder, I'll pay him $80,000 a year. A lot of people come out of college and make $80,000 a year. And a plumber and a welder doesn't have that expense. So, you know, we need to open up all these various different channels. But, um, you know, I think working with the banking system, and, and again, making the colleges have some skin in the game is going to be the solution. Uh, if, if, well, you, you tell them, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to go back and rescind what was done. It would be much too complicated. Work their way through it. And we'll get to the end of it. I can tell you. You know, I had some loans that were very, very strange, to be honest with you. There's something called a tuition postponement option, and you pay according to your income, not according to what you borrow. So I was paying vast amounts more than anything that I borrowed um, to, to make up for the people who became poets and stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> and, and when I became a member of the, of the Yale Corporation, uh, that was my first duty to abolish that program, and we did get it abolished and made it something clear. But, uh, you know, it, it's just something that we have to put on the front burner, and together, that's the problem that we can solve. Yeah.
and they're looking to do what's politically expedient and what's advantageous for them. And it seems the people who actually care about America and care about the people are vanishing in career. So I fully understand what's going on. But here's the answer. The answer is not in Washington and the Washington machine. The answer is in the people. And what I would do is I would make negotiations with Congress public so that everybody could see what everybody was doing and what they were saying. And you could see who were the sticks in the mud. And after one election cycle, we can get rid of all the bad people. I think that's the way we have to do it. But also, when a lot of people know that they're under scrutiny, I think they actually will change. And you know, we've been disappointed because we've sent a lot of people to Congress over the last few election cycles expecting things to change, and then nothing changes because of the culture there. As soon as you get there, there's people in the office saying, hey, we can get you a really plumb position with a lot of influence, and you can do a lot for your constituents. But you gotta sort of go along with the program. And, uh, and so then they get that, that position, and then there's somebody else saying, now we can really get you a good position. And it just goes on and on and on, and nothing ever changes. Uh, you know, I have spoken with, with Speaker Ryan recently about this, this issue. Uh, and he's struggling with this, you know, because he's been there for a while, he's been tired of it, but I think he understands the frustration and is going to be very willing to work with a tough-minded president. I think it is possible. I think it is going to be extraordinarily difficult. And you couple that with the other things that the president's going to have to face in January of 2017, because ISIS is going to be bigger. You know, the jihad's going to be bigger. The debt's going to be big. All these things are going to be worse. All the divisions between the people are going to be exacerbated. and. Uh, you know, you have to almost be crazy to want to do it. But the fact of the matter is, it has to be done. And through the grace of God, I believe it can be done with the people. Thank you very much.